Hey, there we are. <clears throat> What's up, everyone? Hi there. My name is Luke Thomas. I look like a bag of trash, pretty much. Hi, how are you doing on this uh, 29th day of June, 2023? Thank you so much for joining me. This is episode, I think, 162 of my live chat. I really appreciate it. So thumbs up if you're watching on YouTube. That's all great. Hey, why don't you subscribe? You can, uh, it's it's free. It doesn't cost you anything. And in order to participate in the chat, you got to be a subscriber. Yeah? So do me a solid there. And remember, at the end, we'll get to any paid questions you have. But if you want to get an immediate follow-up in there, you can do that too. Just leave a donation in the chat. We got a couple of people watching it there. They'll take care of it for you. Make sure it gets on the screen, all that fun stuff. But of course, if you just want the free stuff, that's cool too. No judgment either way. I'm just glad you're here, if I could be honest with you. All right. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, housekeeping notes. Oh, one quick thing. By the way, did you guys see that they found on this Titanic sub? What appeared to be, they haven't described in any detail what that means, but they're saying they found some version of human, or what was the word? Presumed human remains on this Titanic sub. Someone asked last week about why it was crushed. I mean, I had made a point about how if there was any question about the whole integrity, it would collapse, which is true, but that's not really the right answer. The right answer was that there was a pressurization difference in the middle or in the, in the inside of the cabin and that once that was affected, there was just, you know, it's going to be incineration and there's going to be, uh, it's going to be real bad, but there may have been uh, some version of something left over. So that's a morbid way to start, but I want to get that out there. Anyway, neither here nor there. So I appreciate you guys uh, being here today. Um, we're going to get to some Conor McGregor stuff. We're going to get to some, um, some Sean Strickland stuff. We're going to get to a fair number of things, whatever you want to get to. Your live chat, lots of ways to contribute. So thank you. I'm glad you're here. And without any further ado, let's get this party started. Shall we? All right. Let's do this. My daughter um, was giving me a tattoo today. So if you're asking what the fuck that is, just getting written on. Part of being a dad is just getting uh, barfed on and uh, shit on, quite literally. Written on, crayoned on, you know, you just name it. It's uh, part of the gig. So for anybody aspiring out there, <laughs> what it might look like, it looks like that. You look like you get graffitied up. All right. Sometimes with feces. Who knows? Okay. Um, with that in mind, let's get to some of these questions, shall we? Let's go. All right. Uh, first one's up. Luke, do you have an example of a time you failed or had a big setback in something you worked hard in and how you overcame it? Just a failed big exam at med school oh, excuse me i just failed a big exam at med school i'm looking for motivation buddy this is the story of my life um there has i've never been naturally good at anything at all ever um it just it just didn't work that way even for things like academics i was um at times unprepared for challenges i had signed up for at least you know very temporarily so for example i moved schools a lot and I remember the when I started uh, geometry, um, I wanted to take the AP class, and uh, so they put me in it. And um, I think like my first test, I got like a fifty-three, like some terrible score. I finished that class with an A. I remember when I joined the Marine Corps, couldn't do a single pull-up, nothing, zero. Um, by the time I finished boot camp, I could do I think nine. And then my high water mark, because I'm a big dude, my high water mark was fourteen. 
Um, these are not in any way comparable to some kind of devastating med school failure of a test I'm, I'm imagining. But in this industry, dude, no one ever plucked me out of the group and selected me for being that guy. Like, for example, how did I ever get to a position where I could do? I mean, now it's easy to be a pundit, right? You can just open your phone, get on your TikTok account and just share your opinion with the world, put some interesting things behind it. And you can really take off. It's a great time to do that. But that didn't used to be the case. You had to find ways to get seen and it wasn't so easy. So I had a deal. No one ever like, like wished this for me. I went to um, someone from NBC Sports, Washington. They they needed me for like one segment one time. And I went back to them because there was another person there who was trying to get as much screen time as they could. They're actually now a reporter in New York City for a, a big time news outlet over there. But at the time they were in their career and nobody either. And I was like, hey, if you put me on set and let me answer questions, I'll post these on Bloody Elbow at the time. And uh, she was like, okay, she was just trying to get, you know, as much like reps as she could uh, working behind the desk. This was all digital stuff. We, we, we got to use the television set and I would post all these clips from NBC Sports Washington, which now, now it's Monumental Sports and whatever. But at the time it was NBC Sports Washington. Like I had to make that happen. Um, like no one, no one ever handed a fucking thing to me in that sense. Like obviously I've had a few privileges in my life, but in terms of you know, I don't have any connections in this business uh, when I when I first started. I don't know any. I didn't know anything. Like, um, I had to just I had to just fail a bunch of times. I've had several other podcasts long before this, real small ones that were all disasters. They all failed. None of them worked. Like, uh, n virtually nothing I've ever started or ever had any uh, amount of success in was ever anything that came natural. It's all been friction. <laughs> It's been friction from day one. It's just friction. Um, and so, you know, you're asking, you know, about some, I wish, I mean, I'm sure there's other ones too. Like, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, it, it, there's a lot of things out of your control, like winning a world MMA award was kind of cool, but that's not really in my control, you know? Um, uh, and, you know, there have been times I had lost previously about that. I mean, I don't have any, and I've had, of course, romantic failures, but that's a very different kind of building back process. But yeah, dude, like at every stage in the Marine Corps, you know, um, I, I eventually achieved the rank of sergeant, but uh, there was just a lot of friction with that as well. Like, I just, I wish I could, I, I don't know if I've had the kind of like, um, um, you know, early in my high school career, some of my standardized testing was not up to snuff. But by the time I was done, my standardized testing is what got me into college, quite frankly. Um, so, you know, at, at every interval, I have always been short. And then through just absolute determination, moving to a much better place. Whether or not all the goals were achieved, I think is probably not true. But uh I've never had what you're experiencing, which is like some devastating failure that I had to come back from everything. I in, Even in in combat sports training, like, and this is true for everybody, of course, but, you know, you suck ass at first. Like, it's real tough. You, like, the first six months are not that awesome. You know, frankly, if you're doing it uh, enough and you're going hard enough, the first year is not really that great. You know, like, to be honest with you, it gets a little bit easier after that when there's a new fresh of white belts coming in a fresh crop of white belts coming in that you can begin to, you know, they're, they're, white belts always have like really bad balance. Even on their knees, they have terrible balance. So it's always easy to tip them over and shit. So, you know, eventually that process comes around. But to be honest with you, like, I just can't think of a single thing I've 
ever fucking tried that was like, wow, this is so easy, so great. I'm going to shoot right to the top. Every part of it has always just been horrendous. Um, the biggest turnarounds were always, and one of the toughest classes I ever had was symbolic logic. I struggled with that one, but in the end, I finished strong. Like, I always finish pretty strong. I always start pretty poor. I don't know if that really answers your question, candidly. Um, Luke, is a potential title fight between Yair and Ilya Taporia the biggest Spanish-speaking fight in the history of MMA? Wow, what a great question. Both are offensive dynamos and have fiery personalities. I can imagine it being huge if it was placed in either Spain or Mexico. How do you think they might match up? This is all assuming Volk will be out of the picture. Right, so let's assuming Volk is off at 155, right? He's gone and doing something else. Boy, I, you know what? Uh, you're asking a white guy about whether or not it's, you know, what is or isn't the biggest Spanish-speaking fight. I'm, you know, I'm probably not well-suited to answer that question. Um, from the from the point of view of North American pay-per-view buying audi audiences, uh, I'm trying to think about what two Spanish-speaking personalities would have been bigger at this point. I don't really know. That's a great... I mean, Kane and Verdum is a big one or was a big one. Um I, this one would be big. This one, would, it, it, this would be big, especially if, to, if excuse me, if um, Rodriguez would be the champion and he'd be defending in Mexico. I think that would be, frankly, kind of historic. Um, it'd be huge. Uh, I just don't exactly know. I know that in the Spanish-speaking world, Taporia is a big star. I don't know how that Spanish-Mexico rivalry might work um, to its advantages or not. I don't have a clear sense of that. Certainly, you get some of that in boxing, but that's not like a really storied rivalry nationalistically that's a little bit much more um mexico dominican republic but more in particular mexico uh, puerto rico that's the big one that's the mexico puerto rico is clash of the titans basically you don't really get that with spain it's not the exactly it's not the same thing so my short answer would be it's either at the top of the list or very very close also you're asking how, how do you think they might match up um here's the thing dude josh emmett was tagging Yair, he just kind of took it and was able to fire back. I think that Yair would Yair is going to hurt and land on anyone that he fights, even if they're covering well. His the range at which he operates, the weapon selection, the kicking game is so incredibly dynamic, so forceful, so fight changing. It's really a potent weapon, and that would keep a guy like Taporia um, in trouble. Also, one thing I've mentioned is Taporia has a 69-inch reach. Uh, I was talking to BC today about just we were recording a mailbag episode, and he was asking me how to fight between, uh, let's say, Taporia and Aljo go. If Aljo goes from 135 to 145, and I looked it up, sure enough, Aljamain Sterling has a longer reach than Ilya Taporia. Ilya Taporia has had a reach disadvantage in every single one of his UFC fights, including against Josh Emmett. It was just one inch, but nevertheless, he's never been the guy who had a bigger reach. It's never even been the same. I don't think it's all. He's always been less. So, uh, in considering that. Um, that's another thing he would have to overcome. The difference is that, like, while Yair would be great in certain ranges and certainly off of his back, I mean, the fact that Taporia, you know, was able to get past Ryan Hall, the fact that Taporia was able to take down Josh Emmett, the fact that he, like, kind of bullied Bryce Mitchell on the mat gives me a feeling he would probably be in very strong control there as well. So putting it there, I think, would be strong for him. And also the fact that he moves through combination um, and has, you know, three or four strike combinations as he moves through that space, I think that would be a tough fight. I would probably pick Taporia, 
candidly. I just think his capacity to do damage in different dimensions uh, in a with with a little bit more control added gives him a slight edge. But he'd be up against it, you know. I mean, f- fucking Yair is tough, you know, super tough. All right, here we go. Uh, Luke, do you have any takeaways from your conversation with Phil about Phil Derue that profoundly changed the way you think about training? The MK interview was brilliant. Now, candidly, um, not in the way you might imagine, but f- a lot of these, I-, I follow all of his work. Like he didn't, he, of course, he said a couple things that were new and interesting. He always does. But a lot of the stuff he said, I've through his own page uh, and his own uh, social media accounts. And he puts out, he, he puts out a fair amount of stuff. Um, some of that I had already encountered. So I didn't walk away like blown. Like I, I didn't walk away like, oh my God, my I never heard any of this stuff before. The first time I may have heard all those things were really interesting, but you know, it wasn't exactly a ton of new stuff. I will say I didn't know some of his personal biography and how you know he got had a tough upbringing and was on the cusp of making a lot of bad choices and instead made a bunch of good ones. And look at what it did for him. You know, he's a true success story in every way and a smart guy, hardworking guy, thoughtful strategic um even tempered which is kind of amazing as well since a lot of these guys come from a world where they're not so much that um but i didn't have any major um revelatory scientific sort of training thing said uh during that particular moment uh good question Luke, I want to follow up on the question last week from the person who unfortunately lost their job in media. This is in tandem with recent layoffs across the industry, including Nat Geo laying off their entire writing staff. Yeah, it's scary for the future of the country. I work in local news as a photojournalist, and the writing is on the wall for me too. Myself and everyone I know is incredibly burned out and faced with huge uncertainty for our futures. Is there any hope at all for local news and journalism in your opinion? What would that even look like? Am I crazy for feeling extremely frustrated that something so vital, in my opinion, isn't valued at all? And then he goes on to say, I genuinely don't even know what I do with my life if and when this industry implodes. All I want to do is create meaningful work, but that mar- the market tells us that local journalists and our work is inherently less valuable than marketing to sell pointless shit that no one needs and dumb clickbait. Frankly, that feels fucking stupid to me. Yeah, I mean, here is what um, everyone has basically discovered. Um, two things. I talked about it with Vox Media last week, how they had this sort of back end that they, because remember back in the day, you had to be both a media company and also a media technology company. You could sell B2B technology, right? In this particular case, it was a CMS, a back end. I think it was called Chorus, something like that. And in the end, after like, I'm talking millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars being pumped into this thing as a thing that they were going to make and sell and like, brand as a technology they ended up using wordpress on their background other on their cms they ended up using fucking wordpress you know after i'm talking tens of millions of dollars tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars just for nothing like the reality is basically this all of that okay so there was this grand and slow migration from uh traditional print media so magazines newspapers the like and then the first, and then basically the biggest ongoing shift has been to the online world, like taking all of that and then putting it online. And that's when the vices were coming up, the Vox Medias, the BuzzFeeds, all of them, all of which have now failed in their efforts, all of which are now doing layoffs and salary cuts and the whole nine yards. Um, the, um, the reality is that has been the biggest push is from the print to the online world. 
and everyone thought with all this venture capital money in like around 2010 and stuff like that but beyond that as well pouring in and pouring in that they'd eventually figure out a business model whatever that was and they would make online media profitable but they can't actually figure that out all the fucking things that they thought could do it don't really do it at least not in any kind of grand way the athletic is a, the athletic was supposed to be the sort of subscription answer to all of those other media problems and then they ended up committing all of the same other media problems about scaling the coverage in the way that they wanted to folks this is just the reality now when i say what i'm about to say i'm not saying it will 100 percent go away i don't believe that but uh a lot of media is going to just die right it's not just going from on, uh, print to online it's going print to online and then just going away I think the notion of a new service will retain value for certainly the foreseeable future and then a little bit beyond. But the way in which we have this sort of atomized, curated experiences, people are going to different ways to get their news. We see a lot of younger people, Gen Z, how much of their news is derived from personalities on TikTok. That is not in any way, you know, in, uh, these are not, and, then, and, and by the way, like not just, um, not the Washington Post on TikTok, just, you know, various creators and various authors of whatever they're doing on there media is dying media is dying um and also changing in like really awful horrible ways um i don't begrudge people who like the influencers who become media like you know i don't watch any of that full send content i don't watch the milk boys but they've obviously done very well for themselves right so there's an audience there and we i talked about this with bc like why if you're if you're a fighter you have two, you have three choices really one of them is you can create your own platform and do your own stuff and you don't really have to talk to much media very much i would call that the izzy plan right i mean it's his right like these are very much things he is allowed to do it's it's not like unethical it's it's the reality so he can do it that's one the other one and then you can always do a combination of the three of course but the other one is um we'll go to media but we'll do with the dana white plan which is we're just gonna really talk to influencer media we're not going to talk to guys who are like, who take, you know, I'm a journalist with a capital J title. And a lot of that is self-important bullshit, but certainly people who are going to push back on his narrative in a more forceful way. He's not going to really go to them if he doesn't have to. And he, for the most part, doesn't have to. He can go this alternative route, right? So that's the that's another plan. Or you can do the other one, which is you can go to traditional media. Now, there's benefits and downsides to all of them. But the point I'm trying to make is in a world where you're, if you're an athlete, you can create your own ecosystem combined with a world where there are people who do and sound like they do work and sound like normal journalists, but minus any of the pushback against any real institutional power. Uh, and by the way, because their model is just access, right? Like there's a criticism of access journalism. Like I'll interview you and you'll do the show with me and, you know, I'll give you favorable coverage for greater access, but you know, we kind of have to skirt around the lines and maybe ask a tough question here or there. They can, they can just go straight to the access with none of the journalism. None. So in a world where if you're an athlete and you can create a platform or go to a platform that's not really going to challenge you, should that be a necessity of yours? And by the way, because those other platforms are just trading on access, they can grow in much faster and more meaningful ways uh, as a consequence. Why the fuck would you ever talk to a traditional journalist? Like why? Like why? Here is a great question that I have been pondering and I do not have a great answer to. I am not about to ask what is the in theory function or what would you like to see the function? If I had to ask what is the actual function, what do they actually do? What is the actual, um, uh, what problem do they solve? 
right? What part of the ecosystem do they fill? What would you say is the purpose of MMA media? In other words, imagine, for example, all of the media who go to the events went away. What would you lose? You would lose some things for sure, but eventually they would be able to air their own. Um, you would, there would be no back and forth with the athletes at media day, but that you don't know, you get a whole lot from that. Sometimes, mostly not, I would argue. They could still air all their own, you know, um, uh, weigh-ins and everything else. They wouldn't need the media for any of that. They could still release all of their own data through the commission. They wouldn't need any of that. And you wouldn't get, I guess, a scrum post-fight, but again, they could just hire someone to do that with Dana if they wanted to. They could figure out a way. Like, you don't actually really need them. Like, do, And here's an even more important question. Do you need morning combat? Do you need it? You know, that's the thing I've been sort of, like, wrestling with uh, a lot recently. Like, what? How do we? how do we get to a place where what we're doing is you need that because nobody else is doing that? Uh, because nobody else can provide that. And this, you know, this is another problem. Like in that same kind of question, uh, who's doing something that nobody else does? If you're just trading on access and you're providing tons of access in a way, not that no one else does that, but that is still a thing you can say like, hey, we provide really great access to all your favorite athletes. Like that's a very compelling pitch, even if there is some competition for that. But like, oh, I'm going to help be, uh, I'm a big J, you know, capital J journalist. I'm going to you know, I'm going to be an arbiter for the truth. What the fuck is the market for that? Hmm? What's the market for? I'm going to tell the truth about the UFC's business model or whatever it is, whatever you, you know, whatever hobby horse you have. It doesn't have to be specifically to the UFC, just whatever. What's the market for that versus, hey, I've got an interview with a bunch of champions all this week. Hey, I got to sit down with this famous celebrity. What's the value? What's the size of the market? This the the notion that we have suitable um, business models for media is true in specific circumstances. There can be ones that operate on billionaire benefactor wealth plus subscription models, and like you know, that's not like nothing in life is permanent and sturdy, but that's a pretty good one. Um, some can get by on a combination of um, subscription model plus advertising. There are individual you know places where things like that can work. I think the Texas Tribune has been something along those lines. Um, and then various sort of star journalists can get by on it, right? So they can, they can um, create a big enough platform for, to, you know, to be uh, worthwhile still for people to visit them and want to see what they do. I think Ariel in our space is the closest to that. And, you know, certainly in politics, you can think of star journalist here, star journalist there. You know, I think those people will be just fine. If you can get to a really, really, really high level with a big, big audience. Yeah, yeah I think you'll be just fine. There will be a continued market for that, no doubt about it. But like institutions um, and uh, those are crumbling and the business, there is no really great unifying business model across the space. And for that reason, in conjunction with this atomization of everything of, in, of, of personalities we trust and how we consume media, um, media is dying. It is dying. I don't think that's in any way hyperbole. Please sell Valverde to Liverpool. <laughs> no. No, what is he? Twenty four. We'll keep him. Thank you. Uh, okay, let's see. Luke, I love hearing your life stories and lessons. When did you realize you were no longer a child, motherfucker? I'm forty three. I still don't know. Whether it was your time in the military, finding a path after that, getting married, or having your first kid. Oh, dude, I you know, I'm not sure how to answer this question. Um, you know, a week at Paris Island, South Carolina, will tell you pretty quickly you're not a baby anymore. If that's what you mean. Um. 
maybe that was one probably graduating college was another um getting married was another and then having a kid those are like the big four for me was uh, making it through boot camp you know because graduating boot camp is a big ceremony getting out of the military you just sign some papers and leave an office it's not unless you're like a grand officer or something but for for lowly enlisted guys like i was um you just sign papers and leave and you turn in your shit like there's no there's no uh parade you know um uh, like there is when you make it through boot camp so that was a big one college graduation was a big one um first like big contract where i had some real money was a big one getting married was a big one the birth of my daughter was absolutely transformative yeah like i mean you know i probably learned i realized early on that you know i wasn't a kid but those are those those are like when i think of like the adult milestones those are some of the more important ones um you know getting my first radio show was big but that's not that's more like a it has nothing to do with uh, human development. That's more like just professional uh, growth or whatever. Uh, Luke, do you think Patty is delusional and thinking he could ever break into the top 10? Or do you think he knows he can not at this point unless his striking undergoes major improvements? He is young enough to improve, but my goodness. I hope Barstool is still happy with their partnership. Yeah, I don't know what they were thinking. They got on that. They got. On, I mean, that you know, I I met those dudes. And what fight was that? That was in Cleveland. So that had to be uh, Paul Woodley one. I met uh, Dave Portnoy and Big Cat. Big Cat was well. Actually, both of them were pretty friendly. Big Cat was very friendly. Uh, uh, I don't know if he still follows me on Twitter, but he did after that event. He was very friendly. I enjoyed hanging out with him. They seemed like very nice men. Um, and. Uh, I wish I would have told them then, like, guys, this is not, you know, these are not the bets you should be making. Mm -mm. You know, long-term bets. Like, dude, here's the reality about it. Prospecting is actually really difficult. I think I've talked about this in the past related to the NFL. Like, the NFL, each team spends inordinate amounts on scout teams and draft night and everything in between about who they're going to and what they need and what their performance is and making these guys run through tests and blah, blah, blah. And they still get it wrong half the time, if not more. They get it wrong most of the time. Like prospecting is actually very difficult, but that was an easier call to make than other ones, I think. All right, so let's see. Um, you're asking if Patty could ever break into the top 10. So let's look at the rankings right now. Let's see what the top 10 for lightweight looks like. All right, let's blow this up here a little bit if I can. Here, here is your... Top 10 at lightweight. All right. All right. Let's show you. Here we go. All right. So 10 is Jalen Turner, Rafael Dosanjo, Soryukin, Gamrat, Fazeev. Okay. So you would have to beat the guys like Grant Dawson, Matt Frivola, Hanato Moicano, Demir Ismagulov, and Dan Hooker. I don't know, man. I'd say he's up against it. Wouldn't wouldn't uh rule it out. Wouldn't rule it out. Wouldn't wanna wouldn't wanna uh, make a bold declaration that that will never happen, but uh, you have to beat very good guys to get to 155 top 10. And um, he could maybe beat one, maybe two of those names. Um, so, like, maybe he could, again, like, maybe he could get in the top. I think top 15 is potentially more doable. Top 10, he might, again, also the rankings could be, like, he could just luck box his way into it. But um, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. All right, here we go. Luke, what do you make of the recently announced bout between Shavkat Rachmanov and Kelvin Gastelum? Outside of the name value of Gastelum, 
It doesn't seem like much of a step up for Shavkat. He's ranked welterweight number six to be fighting Gastelum, unranked welterweight number 12 at middleweight. Gastelum always provides a stern test, but I would have expected Shavkat to be looking more towards the top of the division. Burns, Bilal, Usman. Appreciate your thoughts. Guys, I'm going to say it a million times. The UFC matchmakers might have wanted that and not been able to get it, in which case they were like, well, what the hell are we going to get? In which case, Shavkat probably took the fight for name value reasons, as you indicate. Also, Shavkat is very talented. I've been as high on him as anyone. I've had, I put a video up about him about what, a year or two ago, something how long ago was that? Be like, is he the next big thing in the UFC? I mean, he is amazing. I'm as high on him as I possibly could be, but he needs a little bit of sharpening. Like that fight with Jeff Neal was, I'm not gonna say a wake up call, but a reminder that there are some defensive issues that he desperately needs to work on that someone else is gonna be able to take advantage of. Gastelum can hit hard. Um, Gastelum, I think, is a gamer. He's got a good chin. I think he needs to stay off the ground. I think it's on. If it stays on the ground, he's going to get chewed up. Um, I don't really like it for him there. But on the feet, it's certainly a, a little bit more competitive. Although I would like Rachmanov there, dude. This is a good opportunity for Rachmanov to continue like working on his game. Like you get a name opponent while you're well, you're trying to figure out what the rest of the division is happening at the top five. Um, this is a awesome opportunity to shine to potentially get a finish and continue his not only his by the way a 100 win rate a 100 finishing rate uh, up to this point he could potentially continue that while shoring up some of his deficiencies i actually you know and if you're gastelum hello you get to beat a guy who's number six right reg- reg- I, I actually don't hate this fight i know a lot of people are like oh shafkot's gonna run over him probably probably but he needs another moment like this before he goes and does another one that's the issue the issue is he's not uh He's still a little, his offense, excuse me, his defense is a problem. Not in the sense that uh, it has held him up to this point. That's not the issue. The issue is what's ahead and what it might mean. Someone's asking, I'm wondering, they're asking a refresher on my BJJ journey. I tore my ACL meniscus while doing BJJ and will need a operation and extensive rehabilitation. I'm wondering if it's still worth Worth it as a 30-year-old hobbyist before I should just hang up the gloves. Well, I would just say ordinarily, if you're 30, it probably is not at all too late. I, you know, I took breaks. Um, and I think I came God, when was that? So I came back to jujitsu at 32, 33. And I still had several, no, a little bit earlier than that, maybe 31, 32. And I still had several good years. I think I had four or five years after that where I was able to sort of continuously train. And I, there was a period in my 20s as well for either four years as well. Um, so, no, 30 would not be too old. But if you already have a torn ACL and shit, it's like, you know, if you're not going to go to the world championships, why the fuck are you wrestling with your neighbors and tearing your ligaments as a consequence? That's sort of one thing I always wonder. Like, maybe jujitsu brings you unique joy, in which case it's worth it to you. Maybe there's some kind of reason where you would need to do that. But if you don't, like, I don't like these people who do this, like, oh, I'll, you know, surely there will be no consequence for the amount of damage I take by the time I hit 50. Motherfucker, you're going to have all of it. All of it. All of it. And there's just complete denial about this in the, well, I don't know if that's quite true, but there is, I'll, it's not denial reputationally jujitsu has like this hey it's a great thing where everyone can show up and get in shape which is true but what they don't say is if you do it long enough you know you're you're, you're even if you get out without you know with no concussions which can happen or 
major cuts or major ligament damage, like you're going to have arthritic fingers. Now, again, there's no geese more popular, so that's less of a concern than it once was. But, you know, again, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Two of my favorite guys I know were black belts in their 20s. They both had hip replacements by age 40. You know, what, what is what is the quality of life going to be like when they're 70? You know, oh, well, I'll, I'll worry about that when I get there. Yeah, right, dude. You live in America. <laughs> you better plan your health care. You know, and we're all going to get hit by some kind of medical emergency in the last chapter of our lives on top of it. Like this idea that like, oh, I'll just live for glory in my 20s and then walk around with a cane in my 50s and 60s. And like, that's a cool trade. That's a cool trade when you're in your 20s. Not a cool trade when you're in your 40s and you can see 50 coming at you. Mm -mm. Not not nearly as cool of a trade. Not nearly. Unless, unless, like, again, like the people who actually compete and they do this for a living and like, it really matters for them. That's different to me. Like that's, or, you know, again, it has some real purpose. You're a cop, you need it for self-defense or whatever, whatever, like anyone's individual circumstance. There can be ways, or not everyone gets injured the same. If you go and you feel great after 99% of practices or whatever the number is, fine. That's cool too. Uh, I just know a lot of you are full of shit because I have been to class year after year and seen everyone tape themselves like fucking mummies to hold themselves together while they have banged up wrists, banged up knees, banged up ankles, fucked up necks, their backs are shit, they've separated their ribs, their fingers are all messed up, their wrists are jammed, their elbows are a wreck. You know, like you just, I, I, I've seen it. I know for a fact what it looks like and they don't stop. They keep going because once you stop and you start again, you lose your progress and you lose your cardio. And, uh, you know, again, if you're going to make a living doing that, then of course you just keep doing that. That's just, that, that is a trade-off that I think is worth making. But if you're an accountant, like, what the fuck are you doing? Someone's asking a question about, I think you alluded to this on MK, but have you noticed the way that Errol Spence throws his left hand? Of course, he is left-handed. Gets him in trouble. He tends to pivot or drag his left foot, the rear foot, instead of stepping in when he's too far away. Yes, he reaches. He gets caught with his weight falling over his front knee. Ugas and Garcia made him pay a few times. Yes, I have seen that. I have seen that. And anyone who's good at a pull-two counter is going to eat him alive. It just so happens Bud Crawford is good at a pull-two counter. So, yeah, by the way, you know who's got the one of my – I won't say the best. You know who's got one of my favorite pull-two counters in the sport is uh, Frank Martin. You guys know Frank Martin, the boxer? He trains with Errol Spence. Uh, by the way, if you're asking what a pull-two counter is, right, so your jab is the one. You're uh, left-handed, so, uh, so it would actually be this way. This is the jab hand. This is the cross hand. So this is the one. This is the two. Uh, the pull to counter is when you pull. They throw the cross. You get out of. Well, you can. You know, they pull. They throw it. Then you pull it, and you get out of the way. And now they're extended and open. There's your window, and you tag them. Usually, you can tag them with your own cross if it's open stance, right? Um, Spence has been known to do that a couple times. He's been known to reach, and then the famous lesson is: you reach, I teach, right? So. Yes, that is something. I mean, here's the thing. It's like, dude, um, Bud is probably the craftier of the two, and I think that's a problem for Spence. But Spence is going to not let off the gas in a way that I just don't think uh, Crawford has ever felt before. And I, 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 you know, I wonder about that. Like, you notice that like, what Spence is like, I'm not going to try and, like, outthink him. I'm going to try and break him. And I want to be clear, Spence is not some bruising marauder. Spence is a, is a brilliant boxer as well. His his footwork on the inside and his body combination and his, I mean, it's just, 
he's a he is a dynamic dynamic threat he is he reminds me of the scene from the matrix three when the sentinels are about to drill through and to get to zion like how they just drill to the core that's what he does dude he just drills and drills and drills so he breaks through you know and he does it scientifically and he does it you know um intelligently but he does it viciously and i just i wonder about that you know but so bud to me is the craftier of the two and he will take advantage of the thing you're noticing on tape spence will reach on occasion and it doesn't take much to get fucked up this is what i mean plenty of like, dude plenty of guys do this in mma i mean i mean it's just constant you see it all the time they don't often get made to pay for it conor mcgregor had a great pull two counter conor mcgregor has a fantastic pull two counter he hit one i think on eddie alvarez i believe is how he got him he got him to reach and then popped him right over the top pull two counter um but in general in mma you don't get you don't pay for it nearly as often so guys just do it more in boxing you do that against someone like bud crawford it will be bad for you it will be bad for you and quickly at that Um, let's see. After listening to Wednesday's MK, I noticed that a lot of the discussion was around boxing. From the UK, boxing uh, was the first combat sport I was introduced to and still a huge fan. Luke, do you think the UFC's recent matchmaking has led to a lot of combat sports fans to show more interest in boxing? No. As for once, it seems like casual UFC fans are actually starting to gravitate to boxing. No, I don't think so. Would you would, uh, like to hear? Uh, here's what I would say. Either you like MMA or you don't. Either you like boxing or you don't. I, I, there's always been this argument. It's like, well, if UFC doesn't start putting on the fights, people are going to go watch boxing. No, the fuck they're not. No, they're not. And it's the same thing on the boxing side. Well, if boxing doesn't get its act together, people are just going to go watch UFC. No, they're not. Dude, these are different audiences, bro. These are different audiences. Like, they're not the same people. There's some overlap. I'm a version of the overlap. I am the exception that proves the rule, if I could just be honest with you. Like, there is not... There's just not nearly the amount of overlap that you might imagine. Uh, it doesn't exist. So with that in mind, um, there can be factors where boxing does better than UFC or the opposite, where UFC does better than boxing in various calendar windows. And there could be some relationship between one side of one sport not doing enough and another one um you know, trying to make up for the other one's mistakes. You often heard Dana White say, like, you know, we, I forget exactly what the terminology he used would used to be. It would be that, like, we saw how they wrote a blueprint for boxing. We went the other way, you know. Um, there could be some of that. Like, one is like an, uh, is a, a reaction to the other one. But, dude, if you go to UFC fights and you go to boxing fights, these are not the same people. They're not the same people. So, no, I don't, I don't think that. I think maybe the UK is different. So, okay, let me back up a step. Maybe the UK is different. I don't know. In the United States, they're different audiences. They're different audiences. So um, various things can make UFC better or worse. Various things can make boxing better or worse. But the idea that people who like boxing and then are turned off by the lack of star matchmaking or whatever are just going to all of a sudden go watch MMA. No, they're not. Very, 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 very few people will ever do that. Um, let's see here. So I just saw this. I don't know much about this at all. So I'm going to keep my comments brief, but look, what chances do you give the enhanced games proposal that was outlined this week? Do you see it taking place? And if so, with how much success, uh, he writes an Olympic styled competition for drug taking athletes is being launched by an Australian entrepreneur. I mean, this whole thing, I, I suspect, I suspect 
that um, this and various versions of this will be tried over the years and the vast majority of them will fail. Maybe this one, maybe not this one. I don't know. Uh, but this effort to be like, dude, the, the cat is out of the fucking bag, right? I mean, this is what the drug testers just don't want to accept. And I, I, I realize that a lot of other people don't want to accept this, but it just is a reality. Um, the drugs are here. The drugs are here. They're not going to go away. Uh, you can do some stuff to limit them. There should be certain things that are done. I mentioned this before. There should never be a case where minors are taking um, pharmaceutical grade, you know, anabolic compounds. That seems like an extremely bad idea, right? So there are limits. And of course, those limits will be uh, uh, permeable. Uh, those membranes will be permeable as well. But but the, the drugs are here. And the arguments that they have made over and over again about what drugs would do to sport, they I've said this to you guys a million times. There's been rejection about me saying this, but it's true. It, they Virtually none of what they said is true. There, It is true, of course, that if you have a field of, let's say, six runners and only one of them is taking anabolic steroids, that's going to give them a, a potentially significant advantage and it's going to um, change competition results. That much is true, but I've gone back to this on the MMA side. Um, we don't have any evidence at all, none whatsoever, that they meaningfully make like the 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 inclusion, or I should, I should say, the only way you could measure it is um, a less rigorous drug testing regimen. Does that produce MMA that is more injury prone or otherwise has other negative externalities that you could measure in the form of health consequences? And the answer is fucking no, you can't. No, you cannot. It would change if I'm on steroids and you're not, and we're the same skill. Yes, it would it would meaningfully balance or it would meaningfully alter the equation about what kind of advantages I'm taking into a contest, right? So now I uh, I was going to be the nut one getting knocked out. Now you are. Now that is a real threat, which is why you don't want to you don't want people not obeying the rules. Uh, but it wouldn't overall in any way. People talk about this with Vitor. I mentioned this many times. Like, what about what Vitor did? Right, as soon as he got off, what happened? He suffered a string of uh, knockout losses and, and everyone's like oh he should that's not what I'm saying what I'm saying is you're arguing that when you have anti-doping involved MMA is safer show it to me it's not safer guys are still getting knocked the fuck out every time right? it's not safer in any way it's fucking smoking there's really not a safe way to do it so the point being is why not do it in a way that the athletes are in favor of or at a bare minimum have some control over so if some of the athletes actually don't want drugs and they want to be in a place where that's not the case, I really don't want to force drugs on them. But this idea that there wouldn't be a whole lot of people who just pick drugs is just a lie. It's just not true. 100%. And every time someone leaves the UFC and goes to like one or whatever, there's they, 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 they used to get asked, like, what do you think about not being a USA testing people? They're like, you know, what's the first thing they say? I'm still going to win. You know, they like... You saw, they, they, they know the, the score when they leave, and they, they're just tighter regulation there, but although people are going to get by on that too, like, you know, they just have to have bioidentical stuff and then be a little bit careful about it. They can get, Derek from More Plates, More Dates has covered this ad nauseum. They can get around that too, but certainly in places where they're not even bothering if you're going to have more um, usage, like the idea that that makes MMA worse, that I can't trust the results or whatever, I just it's just all bullshit. It's just all bullshit. It's not real. It's not true. The only thing you can say is that it would meaningfully alter the competition in a, in a way where if everyone is obeying the rules and the rules are you can't use, someone using it confers an advantage. Yes, of course. Who the fuck would be in favor of that? That's silly. This, to me, wouldn't solve the problem of doping in Olympic sports for any number of reasons, but this is a much better way of doing it. Guys, we all know the score here. 
this person as an athlete can say, I want to take drugs in order to compete. Me as a customer can say, fucking great. All in favor. <laughs> All in favor. Completely in favor of that. For consenting adults, knowingly know, knowingly uh, understanding the risks, making a living off of this, and doing it in a way where we're now exploring the limits of human potential. Like, what? You know, and every time we've seen this in sports, like, dude, jujitsu as it stands is not as popular today without drugs. Period. Period. It's just not possible. Not possible. I interviewed Mo Jassim, the head of ADCC. The interview didn't come out because a lot of reasons. Um, I'm supposed to talk to him again at some point. He, I asked him explicitly, why didn't you test for, why don't you test for performance enhancing drugs? And he's like, because there's, no one really wants it basically is the answer like it's not good for us he's right he's right he's right so if people want to compete in a jiu-jitsu world where there's no no um where there's no well i should say there's more stringent testing fine like i'm all i'm totally okay with people buying in to whatever system they want just don't say that we can't have this one that's my whole point like it clearly makes sports better clearly who the fuck is going to go then argue I don't like sports as much when the athletes are on drugs. You're a fucking liar. You're a liar. It makes sports way better. Way better. Give them a venue to compete. They're adults. I'm an adult. I know what they're in for. They know what they're in for. I know what I'm in for. Can we make this a transaction and shut the fuck up about it, please? Uh, I don't know anything about this one macy barber and her sister were involved in a fake black belt controversy in their teens taken in context with her aspirations of taking the title of youngest ufc champion do you think her delusions of grandeur this person writes were the biggest stumbling block in her development uh, and has she grown out of them i'm not aware of the contours of that i don't even know anything I, I legitimately don't know anything about that um all i can say is um whatever issue listen Guys, I think every 21-year-old in the world has delusions of grandeur. Show of hands, anyone who's been 21 who looks back on themselves at 21 and realizes they thought some stupid things about what they were going to do, you know, I'll raise my hand first. Like, of course, you know, this is the naivete of youth. I mean, what do you want to say? But the the performance she turned in against Amanda Hibas and the overall, like, effort she's putting in is extremely commendable. Like, I don't know what her background is enough to speak to this in an intelligent way. Um, I recognize that she got out in front of her skis early on in MMA and had to kind of reboot, but the reboot looks like it's going pretty well. You know, um, that, that last fight was great. So, you know, there's still some more proving to do. She's still very young. Okay. Let's see how it goes. But I think you can outgrow some of the, you know, I, I really hope people don't judge me from some of the things I may have did or said uh, at 16 or whatever, whatever the age was for them, where that's a thing. And, uh, you know, as become more mature and we are, are accepting of more life difficulties, we're able to rise to that challenge a little more readily. Uh, let's give her a chance, you know. Uh, okay, this is an interesting one. Luke, do you still have a deep passion for MMA or would you say it's faded and turned into more of a job? Well, anything you do, this is the reality. Everyone's like, oh, make your passion your job and you'll never work a day in your life. What a fucking lie that is. <laughs> that, that ain't even close to true. That's just not true. It's not true. My job is better than most people's jobs. That's true. Like, for sure, that's true. And my job can be very gratifying in certain ways, 100%. Um, my job is, I have a very great job. Like, that is. 
uh, I would never say otherwise. But, um, you know, just because you work in a cool industry doesn't mean everything you do is great, especially in media where you have to just produce, produce, produce. And you don't have the ability to like finally curate content the way you would potentially prefer. Like, yeah, um, it's a job. You know, it's a job. Um, guys, I'm a terrible fit for the MMA industry. I'm a really bad fit. I'm a really bad fit. I love the fights themselves and I hate just about everything else. Um, the sport has taken either, either it's always been on one or it's taken one. It's taken a really strong right wing turn. That's not necessarily my favorite thing on earth. That's not a deal breaker. None of it really is, but that's not my favorite thing. Um, the UFC has in my judgment monopolized the industry. I don't think that's very good. It has attracted of a constantly churning fan base that has to have all of the same lessons explained to them because they're brand new every few years over and over and over and over again, which is exhausting because the sport never ever learns a new lesson as a consequence, at least not the ones that they're supposed to be learning. Um, I, the, I think that the managers are not all of them. There's some great ones, but I think a lot of the managers are undercovered in this industry and are some of the biggest crooks in the entire sport. They're one of the things I would say is the most wrong with them. The fighters don't have, uh, any protections and more to the point, they, uh, lobby, against their own interests not quite literally in the sense of getting lobbying licenses but you know actively speaking out against the material improvement of their condition which you just i just cannot fucking believe it takes you know it takes a fairly strong degree of financial illiteracy to say some of the things in which some of them do I, you, you can't really believe it but it happens um here's just the reality folks if you find someone who's like oh my god i'm like madly in love with mma i've seen people say shit like that you know i probably said it too at a certain point in fact i'm sure i did these are people that have not been with the sport very long, right? So the longer you spend time with the sport, the uglier it will become. It has no other way to go. You start with it from, a, if you really become a fan, you start from it from a deep-seated position of adoration. Total adoration. Adoration for the athletes, adoration for the combat, adoration for the fun, adoration for the ritual, adoration for how it makes you feel, for the... Violence is alluring, all of it. And as you go on, and then the fear, if you stick around long enough, and again, most people don't. Most people come around, they watch a little bit, then they go do something else, they never come back. And so people like us who are stuck here, we get to watch our favorite athletes go from like celebrated figures to then, you know, just becoming cheap facsimiles of themselves and destitute in retirement with extraordinary brain damage, doing any number of like ill-advised things along the way um and then you watch the industry consolidate around a single promoter who is very good at the job but again single firm industries are not going to be the ones you really think are going to be healthy that's been a problem uh and then when you watch how every and media too media too although less so now that fighters are taking control but how every single entity in this space tries to take from fighters without really giving back you know again um it's it's the longer you stick around the uglier it's going to look you know and so for me it's like I, tr I i don't have some purchase on the truth i try to speak to the things that i think are true with the best evidence that i have and i'm sure that there's an up and down record with that as there would be with anyone um but i yeah i don't love that shit no i don't i don't i think that shit is awful i think it's really awful and I think a lot of people end up being blind to it because they have a love affair with MMA that comes and then it goes and then they're gone. 
and they don't have to pick up the pieces of all the shit that gets left afterwards you know that's the that's the most amazing thing about mma is just this fucking constant amnesia everyone has you know no, there's no sense of like yo this guy's gonna get into mma he's gonna get really good he might make money but most of them won't and then they're gonna get out and then they're gonna be fucked and then we're gonna do this over again and then you're gonna get managers who have like eight gazillion clients who are gonna feed one of their clients to another one to get fucking wrecked and they're gonna establish uh they're gonna be basically brokers for the matchmakers so they're gonna fuck just any number of their fighters along the way there's no congressional or otherwise protections for these guys in the industry to have leverage or whatever to make the you know the maximum amount of money yeah the whole thing is fucked dude it's fucked it's super fucked and the longer you stick around these become unless you're just a dumbass or you're blind these are things you're gonna witness over and over and over again how can people say they can stick around a sport for 20 30 years and not notice that shit like the only way to not notice it is because you're the one of the ones you're one of the scumbags benefiting from it benefiting from that exploitation benefiting from commissions who aren't you know who aren't under public pressure you're benefiting from it that's why you know so like do i have a deep passion for mma i have a deep passion for the fights I have a deep passion for what the athletes are capable of doing. I have a deep passion, uh, I should say, a deep reverence for their sacrifice. But, like, do I love all that other stuff? Do I? Do, no, I fucking hate it. I hate it. I absolutely, I can't, I can't stand it. It makes my skin crawl. Um, so uh, maybe I'm alone. Maybe you agree. Maybe you don't. I don't know. Everyone's going to be different. But I have a feeling that if you have a brain and you're in a comp, I mean, dude, you talk to people who've been in combat sports 15, 20 years, man. They've seen some shit, bro. And they've seen some stuff behind the scenes that they can't ever really talk about, including me, because some of this is a little bit hard to um, report uh, accurately. You just can't believe it. You can't believe it. So you come into the sport like I, like most people did. Like, you know, you're, you get blown away by watching this evolution of combat that's incredibly violent. And it just, it's just it's overwhelming and you're like holy shit this is amazing look at all these fights and dude that passion can last a fairly long time but then eventually like the mechanics of how that gets produced comes into focus and then when you notice that that's when the problems begin when you begin to notice the machinery all of it that m leads you to where one guy fights another when you begin to notice how that works wow <laughs> that's when the party really starts you know um no i hate that shit i hate every part of it i'm never gonna like that uh and there may come a day where even as much as i like the fights i can't stomach this anymore that seems plausible too so everyone's gonna be different you don't have to agree with me i'm not asking you to agree with me but uh i love the fights and that's about it. That's about it. If you could... Oh, I like this question. Uh, look, if you could snap your fingers and arrange any long-form interview with a fighter or coach, who would you choose and why? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, Derek James would be one because I haven't spoken to him yet. On the MMA side... Man, I've spoken to most of them, to be honest with you. Um... Brandon Gibson has been very gracious with his time. Uh, Duke Rufus has been gracious. Javier Mendez, Mike Brown. Um, obviously, Greg Jackson I've spoken to a million times. Like, 
I've 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 been able to interview just about all. I'm trying to think: is there someone out there I've re- like that's, that's really killing it? You know, Habib as a coach and trainer actually would be kind of interesting. Like if someone said, "Okay, you can't ask him any questions about his fights, but just coaching and training," that would be like fascinating to me. I would really want to do that. I, I would take that interview. You know, that's an interesting one. Uh, I've been lucky, folks. I've been extremely lucky. I've interviewed Freddie Roach and stuff like that too. But the but the scientists are the ones. Uh, Eugene Behrman. Um, I tried to interview him. I, I guess he was not. I don't I don't know why I wasn't able to do that, but um, it didn't work. Although I used to interview him a little bit more regularly. Um, he's he's brilliant as well. Joe Lopez. Joe Lopez might be one since I've actually never sat down with him. But like I don't want to sit down and just talk to him uh, candidly. I would actually prefer to be in their gym and walk through things or like hear some footage. Let's walk through the footage. Rather than being like, hey, what's your favorite new technique that uh, Southpaws are using? Like, eh, fuck all that. I want to, oh, I'll tell you one. Here's one I have not spoken to. The guy who runs, I think, CSA, uh, Kirian Fitzgibbons. He is, he's he's super smart. I've been watching some of his stuff. He's great. I like him a lot. I, I, he has good ideas. He has, uh, uh, Danaher would be another one. I've tried with Danaher over the years, and he never bit, um, uh, Again, don't know why, uh, couldn't tell you, but again, so people say like, again, I don't know why, so you'd have to ask him, but in either case, um, Kieran Fitzgibbons is, uh, is, is, has got great ideas, smart, he's got clarity of thought and structure to his ideas. He doesn't have like a series of ideas that they're kind of loosely connected or not connected at all. He's got a system in place and he's got hierarchy and thoughts and like rules and how it all operates. And, you know, I I would say that when his students obey or adhere to that system, they tend to have more success than not. He's he's got a lot going for him. Uh, Would it have made a difference if Islam got the extra 12 hours? Are we doing this again? Who has better MMA cardio, Colby, Volk, or Habib? The answer is Marab. Say the fight has no time, who'd win? Colby, I guess. I don't know how to answer that question. Someone's asking any idea where Chamayev is. <laughs> Visa issues? I mean, I don't know. Uh, here we go. This is a good one. I like this. Uh, between the Schultman Fio disaster booking and handling, the recent mass drug suspension, and the extremely shady situation of offshore books taking bets on previously taped fights in April last year, that was more judgment error than like malfeasance. So, okay, but all right, whatever. The PFL has gotten themselves into hot water multiple times over the past 14 months, right? At least two of the above controversies do not reflect well on the actual legitimacy of the results we're watching. Do these controversies give you any serious trepidation that the current leadership will be able to capitalize on their ambitious goals suggested by their post and Ghanu signing? Yeah, it tells me that they have a lot to learn about the fight game in terms of not the drug suspensions, although, like, why would you go to Vegas, who I think can do random drug testing while they're there, or potentially even under other circumstances as well. Certainly, they're they're going to be a little bit more difficult about it than others. Like, if you're a re, you know, they're not regional because they have international talent. But like, if you're not the UFC, why the fuck are you going to places with stringent drug testing? Like, <laughs> just not 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 realistic decision making is what I would call that. Um, Again, the part about the offshore books where they had the the, the the fights that were tape delayed, that's a massive error in judgment, but I don't think that that's anything more than just that. 
And then uh, the 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 man the, again is it Schultz Schulte whatever it is Manfio disaster. Jesus, that was a really bad one. And all the shit about like oh we had we know that they you know worked out some agreement ahead of time. Here's what I know: the Georgia Commission said the ballot result was above board. End of fucking argument. All this shit about like we have reason to believe that they worked out some arrangement. Show me the proof. Show me the proof. Show it to the commission. If that's actually true, if you actually have evidence, evidence that they conspired to um, not so much have a fixed result, but otherwise fight in a prearranged kind of way, you should tell the commission. You should tell the commission. Because, But if you're not going to tell the commission, then please shut up about it because I don't care. I mean, that, that's really what it comes down to. All this shit about it. We know that they did. They had some agreement in place. Great. Tell the commission. That's what they're there for. That, 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 is, that is literally what they're there for. They're there to stop shit like that, right? The, the, that alleged kind of thing. They're there to stop. Among other things, they're there to do that. That's actually what one of their central purposes is, right? Is to reduce fraud in the fight game, either by collusion or by the promoter or by anyone. That's part of what they're trying to do is to provide oversight with that particular interest in mind. Tell the commission. And if the commission still says, yeah, okay, we looked at it, the results are fine by us, well, shut the fuck up about it because I don't really care anymore. That, I mean, it's just nonsense, just complete nonsense. You know, th th we all know what the score is. We all know that that fight sucked the horn and was absolute shit and it was terrible. And then Burgos didn't even make the playoffs. You know, we know what the fucking score is, right? Like, we don't want I mean, to, you know, don't believe your lying eyes is what I think they want you to do. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm telling you, you can quite obviously read what they wanted to do here. They wanted to get someone who was a bit of a high-profile signing into the playoffs, who's also an action fighter and a well-liked guy. It seems like a great guy. It's not his fault. You know, he didn't, he didn't, this is not a his decision, so I don't blame him in any way. In fact, I'm happy for him, but uh, that's the reality. They want to get him in. And then those two guys, they thought that they, they thought that those two guys, um, fought shittily, and they did. And maybe they think that they had some kind of arrangement ahead of time. Again, tell the commission. Otherwise, shut up about it. And uh, and they didn't like that. They didn't like that one guy made it into the playoffs doing that. And it's like, dude, you know, which PFL fan is going to boycott because of that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what what person is like, well, I was going to watch the PFL, but now that uh, Manfio and... Uh, uh, Natan uh, uh, Schulte or whatever it is uh, had this terrible fight. Well, now I just can't follow through to the playoffs anymore. They really should have put in Shane Burgos. Like no one's saying that. You know, there was there's, just, there's no reason to do that other than you needed one of your other names in the later, more consequential end of this, of your programming, and you just manufactured a reason to do it. Like you know, and, they, and they, I know that there is some language in some of their contracts about how they have final say and they have the kind of there's there's a little bit of language latitude in there but also there is some language that speaks to how much it should be honored by what the commission says so like you know we know the score right they didn't sub in someone else who was some jamoke on the roster that nobody knew that could have you know been kind of an uh, on the bubble case they, they put in shane fucking burgos like Let me see if I can pick a good one due to timing constraints. Um, here's a good one. <laughs> How big of a donation would it take for you to tell us what Rogan said to you after you did his podcast? It would take. It would be a big one. It'd be a big one because I mean I'm not holding out hope that he like calls back or something, but 
Joe was really nice to me. I would like to be nice to him back. I feel like this would get in the way of that. You know, even bringing it up was probably not wise, but I didn't think anything of it at the time. And then I was like, about about two years later, I was like, oh, right. Right. Okay. Um. Let's see. Okay. Uh, who is how about this one? Who is the most athletic fighter you have ever seen, and who is the most athletic champion you ever seen? What convinced you they are? Maybe Romero. You all Romero is most athletic fighter, most athletic champion. Dude, BJ Penn was a great athlete. He had, and he had a different kind of athleticism. Like he was heavy-handed, and when he was with the Marinoviches, he had good cardio. And then he also had like insane dexterity and flexibility. Like, dude, BJ was a nightmare in his prime. Whoa. He was a nightmare, a complete nightmare. Um, he might, it might have, dude. I, when he was, when BJ was dialed in with the Marinovich brothers, and he was the lightweight belt. I, I remember looking at him and being like, "Who the fuck is gonna beat that guy?" At that weight class, anyway, maybe up at 170 or whatever. At that weight class, who is going to beat that? There it was. You, dude, no shot. Not at that time. No shot. Frankie came along eventually, but, um, dude, ugh, he was a force. Someone's asking with the big year that boxing, do you think uh, HBO would get back into the fight game? Zero chance. That's never going to happen. Oh, someone says, UNBC hinted a few times on the last MK show about the lack of funding. Is MK coming to an end? No. No, 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 no. There's just... <laughs> Here, here's your hint. Read the news. Read the news. Um, try to see if there's anything else. I think we can maybe get to some of the other ones. All right, if you've got a paid question, we can get to that now. Let me know what you got. Uh, we'll check those out. Here we go. All right. Uh, again, certainly not required. Just a nice gesture. I appreciate them all the same. All right, here we go. Thoughts on college affirmative action decisions. So the one the Supreme Court handed down, I don't have a strong opinion because I've not read the decision nor any of the um, uh, news analysis from various uh, like from former solicitor generals or whatever, or solicitors general. Um, so I don't know. I don't have much to say other than, you know, I, I think anybody right or left who thinks that the court is making decisions along anything other than political lines is kidding themselves. And that's true right or left. It's a political institution with political appointees. There has been, and when I was a kid, you know, and again, this is a romantic view of the world because you're just a kid. Even a teenager, the Supreme Court held a bit of a view of like our judgment is so careful and above those of the average attorney, the average person. And now I think we all realize it's just bullshit. Like the, none of that is true. And uh, it's a political institution with political outcomes. So either side is going to try and stack it in a political kind of way to get the outcomes that they want. That doesn't mean necessarily that this particular ruling is without merit or, or whatever. I get on the merits of the decision itself, you know, I tend to think poorly of this Supreme Court, but um, I just want everyone to know what the score is, right or left. It's a political institution. People are looking for politically favorable outcomes. Uh, 
North Battlefield Taekwondo Academy. No questions. Want to kick a few loonies your way? I've enjoyed your content for many years. Tech difficulties is a favorite. Thank you, bro. I don't know where North Battlefield Taekwondo Academy is, but they seem like cool people. So thank you, my friend. Gracias. Here we go. Do you think Bilal could hold out to fight Michael Chandler at 170? If you're Chandler, do you want that fight? I don't think Bilal wants that fight. Bilal is trying to get a title shot, right? I mean, I can't speak for Bilal, but he seems like he's on a title path, not something else. So I don't I don't think that's what he's looking. I mean, unless I'm missing something, I don't think that's what he wants. Thoughts on Kevin Lee's UFC? <coughs> Thoughts on Kevin Lee's UFC return this weekend for Kretnidov? Uh, excuse me, for Kretnidov looks like a hammer, but I haven't seen enough of him to get a good read. Dude, I like Kevin Lee, man. I've always been a big Kevin Lee guy. Um, I think he's made plenty of mistakes, you know, and gotten out in front of his skis. And there was a real issue with his development. I don't know whose fault that was, you know. Obviously, he bears some responsibility for it. Um, but, you know, these situations are complex. And then, you know, I didn't love what I saw in the Diego Sanchez fight, and now he's back uh, with the UFC. I, I like him. I like him a lot. I like – I think he I, – I, people love to clown on him, but he looks to me like he's in a more mature place in his life. He looks to me like um, he had to go through some real tough times to become a tougher person, and he, he was already – I mean, he was already physically tough, but I mean like truly mentally sturdy. And, you know, they didn't give him an easy fight. I mean, they gave him a tough one, but dude, I remember when he beat, uh, was it, uh, Mustafayev, like smoked him and Gregor Gillespie, like Kevin Lee, when Kevin Lee is on, dude, he's a fucking hammer. Well, there we go. What was that? Holy shit balls. That was weird. Uh, connection is unstable if you're on Wi-Fi, which I'm not. Try plugging into your router. No, I'm doing all that. All right, that was a little weird. Sorry about that. Anyway, long story short is when Kevin Lee is working, when Kevin Lee is um, dialed in, I think he's tough to beat. But he's got a oh, tough opponent. What are the odds on this one? What are the odds on this one? Let's see. By the way, I would have thrown up for a poll, but I'm only now thinking of it, so you know I'm an idiot. Uh, so they've got him in a plus one seventy underdog, and uh, for Kret uh, Denov at minus two hundred, that's probably about right. It's probably about right. It's a tough fight, dude. Real tough fight. All right, here we go. If Musk loses, he's sending Tesla tanks to Russia. If Zuck loses, he's running for president. Zuck wins, he's running for president. God fucking help us. I mean, I mean, again, I think the chances of this happening are infinitesimally small only because I think Musk, you know, uh, Zuckerberg seems like the kind of nerd to just let his company crumble and then try and go train with Austin podcasters enough to, you know, make friends. And dude, let me tell you, let me tell you something. If you can't make friends in MMA, you can't make friends. Like, dude, combat sports world will just accept anybody. I mean, doesn't matter what you've done. Hey, are you a warlord in Chechnya? Fuck it, bro. Let's be let's be friends. Let's be friends. Hey, have you like potentially kind of ruined parts of the democratic world and otherwise undermined elections or been party through the technology you've enabled and negligence to facilitate human rights abuses? Come on through the fucking door. We, there's a place for you here. 
like they'll just let anyone in. They don't give a shit, you know? Um, so if you can't make friends through MMA, just, just become a monk. It's over for you. Here's someone just uh, doing a bit, I think. Luke, candidly, I'm concerned about the totality of your upper bound limits. Thoughts? I think that that is a, uh, a funny joke for some people, and these are people who have been lobotomized. All right. Uh, Ray Ray 99 asks, is the West morally superior to Gulf countries? I don't know what that means. How do you qu- – is this a serious question? How do you quantify that? Western nations have higher crime rates, women abuse – overseas war crimes well are we asking about uh the moral culpability of western governments is going to be pretty fucking high pretty fucking high um for any number of reasons uh the use of slavery and the development of colonies um war and conquest to uh, annihilate populations and take over territories and then wars of imperialism uh beyond any number of other things one could bring up. Yeah, that's going to be a pretty hefty rap sheet compared to um, any kind of Gulf country that could be engaged in various other forms of human rights abuses. That's true. So if we're asking about like who's carrying more moral weight, you're going to be hard-pressed to find folks in the modern world anyway. Obviously, the USSR may have carried more at some point, but they no longer exist. The West is going to be morally culpable in a very... Uh, heavy-handed way. I mean, there can be simply no denial about that, right? Even in my lifetime, the war of Iraq was the war, the second war, certainly, and the first war too, but the second war was most certainly a completely fabricated war of choice. And it uh, destabilized the Middle East, killed about a million Iraqis, it killed 5,000 of our own people, and uh, didn't accomplish fuck all. So, you know, there is weight to be bared there as well. But if we're asking, like, who, um, I think, who safeguards the actual ingredients for uh, human flourishing, I think you'd be very hard-pressed to make arguments that Saudi Arabia is leading Spain in that regard, right? Um, uh, Minorities and uh, women would not be treated with the same uh, legal protections. Um, Certainly, any attempts at using the justice system would be uh, met with significant more limitation in any of these places relative to constitutional or parliamentary uh, democracies so you know if we want to talk about who's carrying weight around from moral failings well yeah it's true the west has plenty to answer for but if we're asking where you would rather live if you take um life liberty and the pursuit of happiness seriously yeah the last fucking place i want to be is saudi arabia what do you expect from cheeto's next performance his style seems fundamentally patient however i can see him adopting Oliveira's striking style I'm not sure what you mean by Oliveira's striking style. It's an interesting question. Dude, Chito is great. He's really good. He was up against it with Sandhagen, but um, I think he's going to give Henry problems. Not Again, not so much early, but middle to the end. I think he's going to start putting it on him. So we'll see. Um, I don't know what you mean by Oliveira's striking style. They have very different boxing. Very different boxing. So I really don't know what you mean by that. But yes, you are. I do agree his style is fundamentally, quote, patience. I'm expecting him to maybe turn up the intensity a little bit. I think it's less so about what weapons he chooses and more about when he chooses to employ them and how early. But, dude, he's a, he's a hammer. Are you now Trump 2024 after J- Junior shouted you out? That wasn't Junior. That was just somebody using his... That was somebody using his uh, identity. But he had. if you look at the at name on Twitter, it was like 
punk something so punk curmudgeon something like that yeah some dude some dude um was like hey i you know i wanted to say this publicly i didn't like he didn't like me for a long time and then he said he would see tweets from me on occasion and be like oh that guy's kind of right and then over time um kind of decided that he kind of liked what i was saying and, and wanted to admit not that he was wrong but that he had a change of heart and I was like, dude, do you know how many times I have heard that in my life? My life is, I told you, friction up front, friction up front. My life has always been about, I meet people, they fucking hate my guts, and then a year or two later, they like me. Or four years later, or five years later, whatever it ends up being. Like, it is. My wife hated me the first time she met me, dude. And now I have a kid in the house with her. You know what I mean? Like, my wife didn't even like Dude, if your own fucking wife didn't even like you the first time you met you, there probably is a, like, I know <laughs> I'm the problem there. <laughs> I know it. Like, I know it. I know I'm the one fucking this up completely. I, I wish I had a better sense of what it was specifically to counteract it. But unfortunately, man, it has been a continued weakness in my life. Um, the good news is I can win some of the people back and some of those bonds are very lasting. But I wish there wasn't so much friction up front, man. I'm always, always, always working out of a deficit. Always, man. Fuck me. Luke, you've shat on Rand a few times on the live chat. Can you explain your beef with her and her writings and philosophy with fans? Yeah, sure. So like other college kids who are fucking stupid, um, during college, you know, you read The Fountainhead, and then I read all of her philosophy books. I still have them all, or most of them anyway. In fact, I not only read her philosophy books. I read several books by other philosophers, like real philosophers, um, who would then examine her work for soundness, validity, you name it. And uh, they didn't have a high opinion, but um, I read all of it. I read, I read the virtue of altruism. Was it? it uh, no, it's not the virtue of altruism. The uh, God, what's the book? It's not been twenty years, so my memory has faded. Give me a second here. Oh, the virtue of selfishness, of course. Not, she she was massively against altruism. She saw altruism as a way to subjugate the self for a communal need. Remember, a lot of her ideas are a function of her upbringing at the time in which she was up, uh, brought up in those places. And then eventually making her way here to the United States. But um, I, I read all the books by Leonard Peikoff. Um, and, you know, they believe that her philosophy is called objectivism. They believe that the primacy of the virtuous unit is the self. The, the, the primary unit of virtue is the self. And that uh, altruism is, in fact, this notion that, like, what's good is um, not subjugating, but putting the needs of others first. This is actually an, a moral inversion and it should go the other way. She was very much against something she saw collectivism, which required the self to be in her mind, um, um, uh, undermined for the needs of the collectivist good, but that these were ultimately pursuits of raw power and that they led to worse human outcomes. And that again, they were morally inverted. And it's just, it's, it, it makes for interesting literary work. And John Galt, I know as a hero, who's like sort of the, the main protagonist in the Fountainhead. Uh, John Galt, I think. Interesting. So here's the reality. Uh, I consumed everything she did. I consumed, Leonard Peikoff was like her handpicked successor. He might even still be alive. Um, and I read everything they did, and you know, I was just sort of accepting it all, like, oh, this is brilliant. I never encountered anything like this. And really, all it is is like edgelord contrarianism. It's not sound philosophy. It's not very good. It's not very thorough. It's not. It, these are not theories that hold up to scrutiny. These. It, it just. It's. It's poor man's ethics. Really, is the best. And then worse than that, it's just 
it's utterly unhelpful. I do think the Fountainhead it can be at times a very interesting read. It's not to say she had no talent, but the philosophy that underpinned the Fountainhead objectivism is very easy to pick holes in. It's not hard. Uh, okay, what do you think of calls for a Volk Islam rematch at 155? Yes. It's unprecedented to lose moving up and rematch so he doesn't have to win at 155 first. Dude, with a fight that close, I don't think you need to. Like, obviously, he had to go back to 145 and get this title fight. BC thinks win or lose, he leaves 145 and then goes to 155. So you're probably going to get it no matter what in a case like that. Um, but no, like, for a champion like that to come up a weight class and give Islam hell, I don't, I, I, not to say I wouldn't mind seeing him fight a Gaethje or a Poirier or whoever. I, I'm not against that at all. But like, do I need to see it? I don't need to see that. Thanks from Jonathan Hernandez. He's got another one here. Is Messi the GOAT? I mean, this is a question for, you know, people who cover this for a living, which I'm not, you know. Um, probably. Probably. All right. Can you talk about or elaborate more on why it's a scary time for MMA media? For example, what's the worst that can happen to morning combat? Well, I mean, you could get fired any day. Um, MMA media was never great, but they used to be a lot better at uh, trying to challenge the various power players in the sport. A little bit more like what you get from boxing. Boxing is very... Boxing is like uh, crypto, <laughs> where it's both a scam and decentralized. So uh, MMA fans should like boxing more for that reason. But if I'm being serious, because it's so decentralized and because it's a shared balance of power, um, at times uneven, but a shared balance of power, the media, and, and also like boxing media is a lot less like new media savvy like one of the best things that's happened to them is this jake paul stuff to be honest with you not for mma crowds for the boxing side just to get like boxing needed like a youth infusion it's still suffering like you don't you don't have the same kind of like dynamic content from them that you might get more from mma media but okay neither here nor there um you're asking uh like MMA media was never really that great at it. Again, they used to be better, but they're, they, it's never been a strong suit. And again, I'm going back to it. Like, what what role do they actually serve today? So, like, for example, John Nash has done incredible reporting on UFC finances. I find the value of that incredibly strong. Like, okay, I can clearly see that. Um, I think there are, like, dumbasses like me who have an audience who try to, like, amplify those ideas and use that for a career and i also do like you know some technique breakdown and but you can get that from a lot of other places too um it's just a question of like what kind of relationship you can build with an audience but like what do you need them for to the extent that if they went away what would you lack and i think that a lot of media have not at, mma or otherwise have not asked themselves that question very thoroughly because when you ask yourself that question you start to get some uncomfortable answers um, if you're ask if you're answering it honestly, I think. Um, so like what I think is probably going to happen is I think influencer media is going to grow even more. I think it's going to replace much of journalistic media. I don't think journalistic media is going to go away entirely. In fact, I think there might end up being almost like a better way for it where influencer media is the stuff that's all attached on fight night. And then the kind of stuff that John Nash does, which kind of serves a little bit more in that watchdog role. They might more honestly adopt that position, but like you can see the writing on the wall, man. The writing on the wall is that these big websites probably don't have a super long future. 
Um, I mean, not anything immediate. I don't think anything immediate is going to happen. But, you know, are they going to be around in 10 more years? I'm skeptical of that. I'm skeptical of that. Um, and, and it's certainly not in the same state they're in. Like, that is definitely going away. Um, so there's that. New platforms will rise. New media consumption habits will rise. But all of these forces, like, dude, like, what? Let me give you one piece of advice that will unify all of this. Because it's something I keep coming back to, but I have not stated explicitly. Who decides what is true and what is false is a very complex debate. And um, no one should ever be under the illusion that everything that they say, even if they feel like they have good reason for it, is true. Like, you know, I know that there's going to be a lot of stuff I say that's going to be wrong or misleading, perhaps unintentionally, perhaps not. But I just know that just, you're human. If you talk enough, it's going to go that way. Um, never underestimate people's appetite, including your own, to be lied to. Never underestimate that. It is the most powerful human um, attraction that I can think of. People, people absolutely love, prefer, seek out, take comfort in lies more than anything else. Lies are what make the world go round, not in actuality, but in terms of the perceptions of things. I know it sounds a little matrixy when I do this, like everyone lives in a dream world. I don't mean it quite so literal, obviously, but even in your own life, you have believed your own bullshit probably at times. If you're if you're 44 and you can't look, I'll be 44 next month. If you're 44 and you can't look back at your life and admit there's been times where you were absolutely buying into your own bullshit, then you just can't have an honest conversation with yourself. So that's certainly a part of it. And then beyond that, what every brand in every sector of the commercial economy is trying to do is set up a version of things that has, you know, a, a sometimes a tangential relationship to the truth and and all of these uh, angles in which fights get promoted and like what the public really knows about some of these guys, both fighters, promoters, managers, relative to what else is out there. They, they, they construct a worldview based on half-truths, lies, inf missing information, and all that is this rich tapestry of bullshit. And that is what people are attracted to. Well, dude, you can get that without journalism. Easy. Easy. In fact, journalism gets in the way of that. Journalism is the thing that makes that a problem. Like, so this is why I keep asking for like, what's the market for journalism? Uh, I don't think it's great. The market for bullshit, the market for me bringing on a famous fighter, asking him or her questions that, that their manager approved ahead of time that, or, you know, so topics were approved ahead of time, whatever. And they get to go and say shit that I won't double check. If they say it, other sites will just repeat it without any double verification. Right? That's 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 what makes the sport go around. It's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. And like what John Nash does, who wants to pay for that? Bloody Elbow does. But what if Bloody Elbow can't pay for that anymore? Who's going to pay for that? Like there's just no market for it. Um, not much of one anyway. So I think there are ways, there are individual actors that could get together and create things for a certain kind of audience. I think there are doable paths for the right kind of people and... Um, platforms it's not to say there's nothing that can be done i i it's not, i'm probably being a little bit more gloomy than maybe i intend but like what's the what's what's the worst that could happen dude in a in a world where influencers run media and this is i'm not saying that 
even under the MMA media's best time, this wasn't also true. I mean, whatever. But if you're a fucking dirtbag, let's say you're a dirtbag manager, right? You got like eight gazillion clients, right? The growth of influencer media is the best thing that ever happened to you because they're never going to ask you about your business practices in a way that you wouldn't like. They're never going to ask about whether you're a broker for the UFC because they want to be close to the UFC too. The whole point is to be close to the action, not to challenge it, not to check it, not to question it, just to be there, just to be in the selfie. That's the, that's, that's the, that's the game. So in that world, you can't even begin to find out what the truth is without doing it on your own. You can't rely on these fucking jamokes to tell you they're not, they're not, they're not in that business. They're in the business of not like I'm, we're lying to our audience, but we're in the business of upholding um, industry fictions that people seem to find pleasant. That's what we're in the business of. That's what that media will do. And that media has significantly more growth potential than anything on the other side. Um, so what's the worst that could happen is that is they just all get replaced and then you, you are being fed bullshit from people whose whole business model is the regurgitation of that without any question about whether it's true. Pretty fucking terrible. Does Brock Lesnar have a better resume of title defenses than Cain Velazquez? Um, so he beat Couture, and then who did he beat after Couture? He beat, uh, let's see, I don't remember his, he beat Carwin. That was a good one. Who else did he beat? He's 45 now? God damn, Brock is... Ageless wonder, although that's still pretty old. Uh, okay, here we go. So, Jesus, his Wikipedia is insanely long. All right. So he won the title against Couture, right? Uh, and then he defeated Mir, and then he defeated Carwin, and then he lost to Velasquez. Nah, not really. I mean, I'm not sure who Velasquez... Well, Velasquez didn't... I mean, he had issues too, right? So Velasquez wins the title against uh, Brock Lesnar and then lost to Dos Santos, then beat Silva and then JDS. I'd say two wins over JDS might be better because JDS also pieced up Shane Carwin too. Regardless of the Charles win over Islam, will Habib always be the 155 GOAT to the potential he had in dominant wins from RDA to Justin? No, he will eventually get replaced too. Have you been up on any freestyle NCAA wrestling? Um, I follow a couple of uh, what's there's a there's a there's this uh, black dude. Uh, his name I think his name is uh, or his account name is like Earn Your Gold something like that. He I found him on Instagram. He's a beast. I love watching his content, but like actual matches I've not been watching. What did you think of the huge Haggerty uh, Haggerty Nong O upset? Um, from what I understand, it's significant, but kickboxing is not a thing that I can like confidently talk about in any kind of way. Do you think political candidates have to debate with a lie detector in place? Lie detectors are not even admissible in court. They're not going to make any kind of debate better. What can be done legally for blatant lies? Um, defamation suits, like the kind that uh, Dominion got $787 million out of Fox News, those are pretty helpful. Um I was going to say something too, like this whole debate thing. I was actually between the Rogan and then, and then Dr. Hotez. I was actually on the side that I thought Hotez should debate Rogan. But I want to be clear about something. Like as much as I believe that, people think like debate is like this real great crucible to distill the truth. 
it's got fuck all to do with that. Debating is a skill, and the skill is operating within the rule set. It's a fight. Like, um, guys, if you've ever debated at either the high school or the collegiate level, here's something I'm going to say that anyone who has is going to be nodding their head to. I can take two people versus a team of other two people. That's often how uh, there's sort of Lincoln-Douglas debate and then there's policy debate. On policy debate, it's usually two versus two. I can usually do I – can, I can give uh, one side with a 100% true account with like good evidence for it and tell them to make the account. I can give the other team 100% bullshit with perhaps not even a great like amount of evidence for it. And if those guys are skilled debaters, they're going to wipe the floor with the truth. Like the idea that debate gets you closer to the truth, it can, but that's not what it's built necessarily to do. It's built to have contrasting ideas clash. And unless you have a really great system for that to get to a better version of the truth, it just won't. Um, Let me give you a great example. There's a great example. When I was in high school, this is a long time ago, there were these two guys who would float around from a neighboring high school. They were both pretty smart. I think they both ended up going to Georgia Tech. They had this case that so one of my sophomore year it was they, they always give you in policy they give you something that you have to debate, and the my tenth grade year it was uh, the United States should substantially change its policy towards the people People's Republic of China, right? Now what does that mean? You can decide what that means. What it meant for these two guys what the because your one team is the affirmative one team is the negative. What it meant for them was they decided that they were going to do a two man case where they decided to have the United States leave the United Nations. Now, this is not now where you see some of this talk online that people think it's like this globalist overtaking thing. This didn't really exist in 1996 in that kind of a way. Certainly not. It was more like a very peacekeeping kind of, you know, you saw it more like the IOC than anything else. And uh, so recommending that was like massively altering. And it had a China connection, but it was like this massively disruptive thing to the international order, which I tried to argue. Now, these guys were good. This was my first year and I was not very good. These guys were good. They won that case. They won the case that we should like utterly upend the international order as some kind of like resolution towards China. And again, they were like, and I know some folks might be saying, oh, well, they were right in the end. Guys, they were not trying to argue like a plausible case. What they were trying to do was they had very carefully crafted a debate case where they began to make an argument tree all the way down on every side about if they say this, we say this. If they say this, we say this. Here's the data point we use for this. And in fact, if you looked at their total case, it was not very strong. It was debate-specific strong. And they they won that way. And I saw other ones too. I saw guys come through and literally argue and win. We should use neutron bombs for minimal um, infrastructure damage to take over certain territories, even though it would cause you know widespread human death. Uh, as a better alternative than peaceful resolution through international order. Like, they're talking about actually bombing the fuck out of people. And they won. And they won. They won. It has nothing to do with those things unless the debate rules themselves are constrained in that way and there's some kind of, um, you know, fealty to the truth built in. Otherwise, people will just say bullshit. They'll just say bullshit. We'd all watch Zuck versus Musk, but we ain't paying. Can you imagine giving a dime to those fucking bozos? <laughs> oh, it would go to charity. I, I'll give to charity. Thanks. Don't need your help. I'm good. Um, 
If someone gave you a million dollars, would you go in a submersible to watch the Titanic 12,500 feet below? You know who's submersible I would go in is James Cameron. Dude, James Cameron's submersible could go... This motherfucker went into the Mariana Trench. Do you guys know how deep that is? That's almost 36,000 feet. Three times the depth of where the Titanic is, which is already like an insane level of depth. He went three times that. So yeah, and his submersible, it is submersible, no problem. No problem. If Sandman loses against Umar, would that be title shot over? Is he getting the right advice for content prices? Thank you, bro. I appreciate it. Um, it would be tough. Over, no. But badly diminished, yes. Badly diminished, I would I would think so. Who wins in a boxing fight, Taporia or Poirier? Poirier is going to be the heavier hitter and the bigger guy of the two, and probably in longer arms. I'd probably say him. This is annoying, but can you argue against objectivism? Um, I'd have to do a little bit of refreshing. Uh, and also, um, do, I, do I have it here? So here's one that I read a long time ago. Ayn Rand, the Russian radical. This was by Chris Matthew. I never know how to pronounce his last name. Siabara. Um, in any case, uh, I think at the time he was a professor out of NYU. And, you know, that goes into Lasky and um, Force, the Predatory State, all kinds of stuff. Where is the virtue of selfishness? I don't know where that is. Oh, wait, here we go. Here we go. Here is uh, Ayn Rand, Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology. Um, she had a lot of things uh, related to her epistemology, so much of it quite wrong. Uh, here's one. She was like, um, feelings, are, um, uh, feelings are not tools of cognition, which is strictly true, but not actually true. So there's one right up front for you that um, she was dead wrong about. That's why I built into her philosophy more generally. Um, I don't know what I did with it. I'm trying to see. I have another, I have like a whole nother thing upstairs. Maybe it might be up there. Um, I'm trying to think what is a central tenet from the virtue of selfishness that we could really go over here in a helpful and reasoned way. Um, Let me pull up something if I can. Okay. Virtue of selfishness. Uh, here we go. Nathaniel Brandon. That's a name I haven't heard in a long time. Jesus. Here we go. From the from Wikipedia. Um, blah, 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 blah. The things, 19 essays, 14 of them were written by Rand. And then the thing, Brandon and Peacock had a split. That was the thing. Brandon wanted to take like objectivist underpinnings and then expand in the philosophy in one direction. Peacock was like, no, 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 no. What Ayn Rand said is objectivist philosophy. What you guys say it is, is just like, it's only what, what she said. That is objectivist philosophy. And so Brandon and Peacock had to end up uh, having a split. Um, 
Here we go. This is what they say from Wikipedia. I'm just going to read this very quickly. Rand's characterization of selfishness as a virtue, including the title of the book, is one of the most controversial elements. Uh, other philosophers have said her position on the point brought notoriety, but kept her out of the intellectual mainstream. That's true. Rand acknowledged the book's introduction. The term selfishness was not typically used to describe virtuous behavior, but insisted that her usage was consistent with a more precise meaning of the term as simply concerned with one's own interests. That's not true. The equation of selfishness with evil, Rand said, had, uh, had caused the arrested moral development of mankind and needed to be rejected. Here's what they say. Critics have disputed Rand's interpretation of the term. Uh, they've described Rand's use of selfishness as perversely idiosyncratic and contrary to the dictionary meaning of the term. That's true. Rand's claims to the contrary notwithstanding. Presley believes this is the uh, libertarian philosopher, believes the use of the term has caused Rand's arguments to be frequently mischaracterized. There's some other ones. Is rhetorical excess, saying that without qualification or explanation, it is too paradoxical to merit serious discussion, right? So it's sort of self-contradictory in a way for other ones. The bigger point was that when she would make an argument about the virtue of selfishness in the individual unit in which she was describing in ways about, you know, sublimating the individual to, to the larger needs of the collectivist whole, there were certainly circumstances where you could imagine she was, you know, quite right about it. She had a real horror. She had a real aversion and horror of the Soviet Union, which I think impacted a lot of it. But then when you saw her more broadly begin to construct a vision of what that looked at at the societal level, it became this kind of unworkable mess. It, it was never really designed for anything where um, reasonable community could be, to, be established, where the government could have the kind of functioning power it needed to to ameliorate bad situations. Of course, some of the limitations that she did want to place on government were, were I think, fair. Um, but it was just one of these things that... It's 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 a little bit like the, um, you know, if you read uh, one of Sam Harris's books, um, God, what was the first one he wrote? I have it here too. What the fuck is that one? Ah, uh, the end of faith. In the end of faith, he makes an argument about what is the basis of human, uh, what like what's good for humans, and his answer is whatever is sort of producing human flourishing. But of course. That definition is really, even the way in which he tries to articulate it, is an extraordinarily vague way of going about things. Um, and in a so when you again when you build out a broader sort of macro view of what that kind of society looks like and what kind of government is enabled to build that kind of life, you don't really get to um, it. Does it's not it's not nearly precise enough in his case, and in her case, I think it ends up getting a totally twisted and morally demented kind of um, social view. Thought, that's not really a great explanation, but we can get more to that later. Uh, thoughts on Chimaev running from a reporter asking about his connections to the Chechen dictator? I didn't see that. I didn't see that. That's fucking hilarious. Where was that? Where did that happen? Uh, Chris says, what fighters do you think would have the best chance of expediting a path to a title with a move to a new weight class? Uh, Volk. Um... Maybe Izzy. And that's probably about it. Uh, Valentina Bantamweight too, yes. In addition to that, yes. Look, you mentioned the need for journalists. The way I see it is the main need is to keep the sport that you love accountable and healthy. Now, does your average fan actually value this? I Healthy, yes. Uh, no, excuse me. No, the answer. I would say probably not. I don't think most dude, most people don't know how most NFL fans don't really have a clear sense of how the NFL runs. Most NHL fans don't have a clear sense of how the NHL operates. Most UFC fans don't have a clear sense 
of how the UFC operates. Like, that's not like the end of the world. But like, the question is not, do they value it? You wrote, did they value it? The question is not that. The question is, do they, will they pay for it? That's the question. Oh, I value that. Okay, do you value it enough to spend 20 bucks a month paying for a version of it? You know, that that's the issue. Uh, and then last but not least, Luke, just want to say thanks for not talking about Elon and Zuckerberg. Yeah, well, I do my best. Um, let's see. Hold on. Yeah, a lot of, yeah, a lot of the arguments about, um, I, I had a philosophy professor one time. This this is true. Um, I took some of her ideas and I, she had, by the way, a lot of it was like really simplistic too, right? It wasn't like a very thorough um, uh, philosophical system. It was very beginner to intermediate level of sort of systemic thinking. But I took some of that to a philosophy professor, one of the smartest ones I ever had. And I was asking, like, what do you think about her ideas? He's like, yeah, they're interesting. And I was like, why doesn't academia take them seriously? And his the answer was at the time, he was like, they just don't hold up to scrutiny. They're like fun. But when you put when you lift under the hood, there's just not a lot there, save for individual sort of moral examples where what you could imagine it being the case. But hers is so is so reactionary in one direction it doesn't have the kind of nuance to do that and other forms of you know reasoned moral analysis all right it's been 20 years since i've done with this material you can tell all right uh thank you guys so much for watching i greatly appreciate it uh hey thumbs up on the video if you'd be so kind email me lukethomasnews at gmail.com if you feel like it and uh yeah we'll get this stuff up on podcast until next time stay frosty my friends frosty